Welcome to The Professor and the Hack. We're up to episode 39. We can call this one the COVID-19 episode. I'm the Hack. I'm Hugh Rimmington and uh, PVO, the Professor, Peter Van Onselen. Hello I doubt we're you. going to talk about anything else, Hugh, but we're not face-to-face, which is, is your story to tell, I think, for, for our listeners. Yeah, so I am actually uh, on medical advice in isolation at the moment. That all sounds very dramatic, um, it, but... Uh, the word of the day is caution, an abundance of caution. I got a phone call on Saturday to tell me that Qantas had contacted Channel 10 to say that uh, someone who was two rows from me on a Qantas flight back from Brisbane, I'd gone up for the funeral of Hannah Clark and her three children up in Brisbane and uh, on the flight back, someone two rows away from me, uh, had subsequently tested positive for coronavirus. This is going back to Monday last week. No. No, okay. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think well, so. Well, because I, I, I know he's it. from Brisbane and he's all that stuff. But um, yeah, it was in. He was in. Well, whoever this person was was in row two, and I think Peter Dutton, like many of these politicians, like uh, seat one A. But um, I don't know. I didn't see Peter Dutton. He's a big unit. I think I probably would have noticed him if he was on the same plane. Yeah, uh, it was probably some other punter. So. I got the phone call on the Saturday, and so on medical advice, I presented myself at the St. Vincent's Hospital COVID uh, fever clinic, as they call it, down at uh, Darlinghurst in central Sydney. I, um, what was that like? Tell us about that. Yeah, so what happens is that, I, oddly enough, before I'd got the phone call, I'd gone down there just to have a look because I'd heard the fever clinic was up. Right. And being just curious for my own sake about how these things work, I'd wandered down. And uh, just to have a look at it, there were people all turning up and then little realising that a few hours later I'd be there myself. So what happens is that you you turn up with a lot of nervous-looking people. I am putting people. hand sanitizer on as we speak, yeah. by the way. You're freaking me out, but go on. <laughs> and we're talking over a line. We're not even seeing each other face-to-face. Um, so you turn up and there is a, a, a somewhat nervous, harried-looking um, staff member from the hospital sitting outside the hospital so you get presented with a mask it's about the one place you can find a mask uh these days and to wash your hands they take down a note of your details and ask you why you're there now because uh of my even though i wasn't symptomatic which would normally rule me out and according to the flow charts would rule me out um because i'd had this call from Qantas and also because I'd taken separate medical advice and the doctor said yeah look go down and get tested I I gave that to them I also have uh, another uh, element to my story and that is that my wife as some listeners might know is going through chemotherapy at the moment she has low immune system Mm. and so we've got a heightened sense of uh, risk around that they didn't hesitate they sent me through I followed the green line into the hospital and took uh, my place with the um, nearly 200 people who'd gone through that day. And uh, in groups of 10, you, you, you go in there, you get uh, your temperature taken, your blood pressure taken, and um, I think there's a few other clinical notes just on your general appearance. You wait in, a, in the waiting room. And then in groups, you are taken into another little waiting room and then you're taken through there to be tested. Um, there were staff would come through and disinfect uh, the seats that you're sitting on. They're all, of course, in the full kit. And um, a test is 
straightforward. It's not entirely pleasant. It involves getting a sort of like a long cotton bud shoved right down the back of your nose into your into the back of the throat, a place that's not normally invaded and it feels a little bit odd, but there's nothing actually dramatic or particularly unpleasant about it. And, and then uh, um, that done, you can go. The whole exercise probably took 45 minutes. Uh, now, I was told I would find out in 24 to 48 hours. This is from uh, Saturday afternoon and i haven't had a reply yet so they if it's negative apparently you get texts right. uh if it's positive you get a phone call now i'd love to have uh peter dutton's pull because he was able to get a test result back in six hours we're told on friday but um so that's, can i ask that's you about that hugh because I, I did put some queries into the pmo about that and they said these tests are actually very fast yada 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 because my query was how does uh, are we certain that he was only symptomatic when he says he was on the Friday, if he then found out later that Friday afternoon when everybody else, like you seemingly, have to wait so much longer. Is there any evidence that this can happen more quickly? I mean, I can assume Peter Dutton can pull some strings, but the office of the Prime Minister seemed to be suggesting that, no, that didn't happen. Uh, It's actually quicker. Well, there are only two possible answers to that. And one is that uh, he did pull strings or strings were pulled on his behalf. And that in itself, I'm not too offended by. If you've got a senior member of a cabinet involved in border security as a Minister of Home Affairs um, at a time where he potentially has coronavirus, it turns out he does have coronavirus. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, there, I, I'm quite happy if strings are pulled on his behalf to get that through, as I would be, for example, if it was someone who was, in the vulnerable category and heavily symptomatic. Now, I wasn't symptomatic, so I'm happy, I'm happy to wait. Um, I think, you know, maybe there should be some triaging of the test speed. And I don't have, in principle, an argument against uh, a person who's got part of the carriage of dealing with the crisis being tested early, and that would be Dutton. Now, so that's one possibility. Maybe strings were pulled in order to get him his result back in a matter of just a, f- a short number of hours. The alternative, of course, is a much more concerning possibility, and that is that, in fact, the testing took longer, and that the time frame that he has made public, that he was tested on Friday morning uh, and got the answers back in the afternoon, mm. uh, was false. And, in fact, there's... Uh, you know, that we're being misled on that. And in in fact, the timeline goes back before that, that he was tested earlier because he was symptomatic earlier. And then you have to take the timeline back before that into all the other people that he might have been in contact with. Let's, for the sake of the argument, uh, assume good faith in the absence of other information. But it does sound very strange. Uh, but let's assume good faith and that what mm. he's told us is, is correct. So so there it is. Um, at the moment, as a consequence of that, I have to self-isolate. I've observed this carefully. I mean, a, how a do you lucky... feel about it, Hugh? Like, how does it make you feel, you know, I mean, worrying that you might have it, the, the sense, as you say, of isolation, uh, family-wise, well, certainly, work-wise? So Sure. So there's a couple of things about that. I'm not worried in a health sense because I'm uh, fit and I'm not symptomatic. If I was feeling really dreadful, of course, I might have a different view. Mm. Um, But I live, and it's it's interesting, there's some talk about the mental health elements of of all of this on people, the sense that people get further isolated in a society that's increasingly isolated. But I live an unbelievably busy family life with three kids, 
my wife works, when she's she's been working from home, even she's been going through cancer, and whatever else, like many people who might hear this, I have that kind of chaotic life where there's always socks on the floor, a wet towel left on a bed, a cat that needs to be fed, um, cuddles at night time, you know, the kids put to bed, you know, all the usual things. It's that, that frantic busy family life and it does feel odd i had to send a text to my wife who's upstairs um saying for the first time in nearly 15 years i haven't put a child to bed when i've been at home when i've not been traveling i'm in my own house i'm fortunate enough to have a room in my house which i set up for my older daughter when she was living here before she moved out um which has got its own little kitchenette and it's got its own little bathroom so i i can self-isolate quite easily here but at the same time that business has been cut off from family um and because of my wife's illness and condition i could be because i'll be coming and going hopefully back to work um as soon as i'm cleared of this uh, but nevertheless being potentially exposed to people i have to protect my wife and it could be weeks before um, or months before we're back in a situation where I can have that level of contact. In fact, my wife and I went out for a walk in the park yesterday with the kids and my uh, my eight-year-old had got a piece of red wool and measured it out to two metres. And uh, Mary, my wife, held one end of this piece of wool and I held the other end and we kept it taut. And that way we could go for a walk in the park together while keeping the requisite two metres distance between the two of us so we can have a chat and a bit of exercise and see each other. <laughs> so these are, these are just some of the adjustments. So, you know, there are so many adjustments going on at the moment, but, but these are the realities of it. But enough about me, PVO. Um, this is, without question, now an event we knew it was going to be. It is now an event which is touching on one level or another every single person in the country and indeed every single person in the world. So you're on Insiders at the weekend on the ABC. You've been furiously reporting all of this. Um, the messaging is changing. What is your understanding of the key takeout messages that people need to follow right now? Well... How would you know, right? I mean, one, one of the problems here is that the government's messages are all over the joint. When I was on Insiders on Sunday morning, the chief medical officer strolled in, started shaking hands with Phil Curry, David Spears. Let me tell you this. David Spears comes out of the bathroom or something, I think. He certainly comes into the room and he sees the chief medical officer. I was already just sitting there gobsmacked that he'd accepted Phil Curry's hand for the handshake. And I just sort of thought, oh, well, you know, mistakes happen. You know, Phil's lent in, he's lent back and shaking his hand. Karen Middleton and I were looking at each other as if to say, what on earth is going on? This guy's meant to be the chief medical officer. Spears walks in and he just makes a smart-ass joke and says, oh, well, hi, good to see you. I'd shake your hand, but... And then the chief medical officer thrusts his hand out and says, oh, it's fine. It's not a problem. So then Spears shakes his hand. I'm sitting there going, not a problem. You're meant to be the chief medical officer. I know he's a kidney expert rather than an expert on this stuff, but he's still a bloody doctor. He's still the chief medical officer. He's also the secretary of the health department. We can maybe talk about that conflict of interest in a moment. But he does this, and I'm just looking at him. And then I tweet it, you know, did I break a golden rule of green rooms? Well, I think when the chief medical officer walks in and does something so blatantly stupid then we can break the green room rule. Anyway, well, then, well, besides, then, besides the green room, because you're well, not I'm breaking any confidence. You. I know what you're saying. Then yeah. he gets on air. David, being the gun journalist that he is, of course, sets him up, you know. So, 
you know, Mr. Chief Medical Officer on air, a handshake's okay. You can see the guy sitting there thinking, bloody hell, they better be okay because I just gave you one, as you damn well know. So then he says, yeah, you can handshake, no problem. I'm sitting there on the panel going, what? <laughs> How can he possibly say that? Then, you know, we, we have a debate about that on the panel. Sure enough, a few hours later, the Prime Minister does a press conference. We shouldn't be laughing because coronavirus is so bloody serious, but the Prime Minister does a press conference and says, handshakes are out. Can someone tell the Chief Medical Officer? Can someone tell the bloke who's supposed to be providing the medical advice, independent, even though he's also the Secretary of the Department of Health, to the government that handshakes are out? Or did something massively mutate, Hugh, on this virus between 9am and 1pm when the Prime Minister decided to stand up and completely change what the Chief Medical Officer just told everyone publicly on the show and did with half the panel privately? as well in the green room. Well, well, what a The Prime Minister today lecturing people that they shouldn't get their medical advice from Twitter, they should get it from the Chief Medical Officer. <laughs> and also the Prime Minister, when he says that handshakes, uh, you know, uh, are off, oh. he says, you know, as we've been saying now for a couple of weeks, handshakes are off. A couple of weeks. <laughs> well, the New South Wales Chief Medical Officer a long time ago said handshakes are out. I got text messages between you, me, and our entire listenership from senior people in the New South Wales government after the insiders pulling their hair out about what the chief medical officer federally was saying. They're just like, oh, my God, what is wrong with these people? Like the text messages one day with approval will go in a book and it will be quite something. But, you know, their response is just like, what's going on? Then, they, have, of course, the prime minister has his meeting, his COAG meeting with the various premiers. You can only imagine what they've said to him, right? And he comes out of that and he goes, you know what? Come to think of it. Handshakes are out. He doesn't stand with his chief medical officer next to him, the bloke who just was shaking hands like, you know, it was going out of fashion in the green room uh, and then telling everyone publicly that it was fine. He stands there with an acting chief medical officer because how ridiculous would it have been if Brendan Murphy was standing there next to him? He might have put his hand he, out he and tried been... to shake Scott's hand and go, you know what, good idea, case closed. Well, not, not only that, but the whole oh. news conference would have descended into a, uh, but excuse me, uh, Professor Murphy, you know, what, what has changed between 9.30 this morning and the afternoon that has made handshakes gone from being, yeah, no worries, shake hands, I'm but shaking you... hands down to completely verboten, you must not do it. But Hugh, what happened on since Friday for that matter? Because the Prime Minister turned up at COAG on Friday, thrust his hand out to Gladys Berejiklian for a handshake. She's recoiled in horror, so the handshake didn't go ahead. Then, of course, you had the PM running around going, oh, look, they might close. You know, We will be closing off mass events come Monday, so I can't wait to see my Sharkies play. I'm going to get out there amongst it. This is the bloke, by the way, who sat in cabinet with Peter Dutton, right? Now, sure, they say it was more than 24 hours before Peter Dutton became symptomatic, so therefore everyone's okay. That's the advice of the handshaker, let me just tell you, by the way. So the handshaker says it's all fine, the chief medical officer, but the World Health Organization says actually it's 48 hours, but then also the World Health Organization and the chief medical officer say, well, we're actually not really that sure. We think it's 24 hours. The World Health Organization says 48, but none of us really know. That's a quote as well, by the way, from the green room. None of us really know. So which, my which point. is which is which is true, of course, and this goes into this issue that people need clarity. The reality of it is is that there is necessarily a degree of guesswork. 
because this is, as they say, a novel coronavirus. It's a new coronavirus. And as the head of the Ebola response team, an absolute expert in epidemic control from the World Health Organization says that speed trumps perfection. You've just got to move fast at shutting things down. And that's the caution principle, isn't it? Like, And this was the point, I think I made this on on Insiders, maybe I didn't, but Peter Dutton has coronavirus and you know we all obviously wish him well he's in hospital being treated for it it looks like fingers crossed he's going to be okay but whether it's 24 hours whether it's 48 hours before symptoms were shown that he was able to pass this on and be contagious or whether it's more than that and we just don't know because it's new as everyone acknowledges wouldn't the conservative prudent thing for the cabinet be to self-isolate just to be safe to test just to be safe. I mean, it just makes logical sense. And a lot of experts are saying it, but they just don't want to do it for some reason. And here's another one for you, Hugh, while we're at it. And by the way, people on the Qantas flight that Dutton was on back to Australia because of him are self-isolating at the request of the airline. So that's incredibly cautious, far more so than what the cabinet's been. And here's another one for you. Josh Frydenberg decided to test himself, but not self-isolate. Now, apparently the rules, Phil Curry was looking this up while we were in the green room, the rules say that you're allowed to not self-isolate if you are being tested. They're not necessarily one and the same. But the rules do also state that you are to avoid mass gatherings if you are getting tested, even if you don't self-isolate. Now, I've got to check the timing on this, but there are pictures galore of the treasurer visiting schools, getting selfies, photos. I think some of that might have overlapped with while he knew he was getting a test result and waiting for it. Does that mean that, okay, he didn't violate the rules by not self-isolating, whether you agree or disagree with those rules, but did he violate the rule about not attending mass gatherings if he's in the thrust and in the thick of it with a lot of people? Maybe he did. I have put that request into him. Silence has been the response. What does that tell you? Well, the other thing is that we don't know exactly why it was. What was the thing that made him feel as if he had to test I, himself? I so. think that was his time in Saudi Arabia. I think he tried to. Oh, say that's it. true. Yes, there yeah, wasn't a lot of meat on the bones of it, but I think that was the essence of it. Yeah, it's funny because the other thing which came out of the Sunday afternoon press conference from the Prime Minister was this notion that's now going to be uh, supported by penalties under state law, that Mm -hmm. if you a visitor arriving from overseas or an Australian coming back from overseas, you must self-isolate for for 14 days. And the first question was, so how does it work? You get out of the airport, from Chris Reason at seven, you get out of the airport, you get in a taxi, you get home and then you self-isolate. And the Prime Minister says, "Yeah, yeah, that's what you want to do for 14 days. And the obvious question being is, what's with the taxi driver? <laughs> you know, you, your taxi drivers are picking up hundreds of people a day in a vehicle with people who we're now being told by force of law must self-isolate for 14 days. But every taxi that you get into, unless it gets disinfected between every traveller. Oh, God. Well, what um, is the answer to that? That... Uh, oh, no. You see, that, this is the thing about it, how it hasn't really been thought through. Um, it's hard to stay on top of all of these things. But if they were serious about it, presumably what they would do is put people, I don't know, into vehicles, they'd supply vehicles, they'd take it over, um, you know, they'd get the army out, use army vehicles, you put people in them, take people where they want to go, have the army people, you know, in um, in proper protective gear or whatever it is like that, disinfect out the army vehicle, you know, because realistically speaking, taxi drivers are potentially 
uh, you know, vectors. If it is a business of touching, this is where the washing of the hands comes from, is that the droplets, etc. particularly if someone's remotely symptomatic, they cough, mm-hmm. they sneeze, they, you know, they reach for a door handle, they leave droplets, the next person gets in, picks up those droplets on their fingers, uh, you know, touch the corner of their mouth, whatever it is, that, you know, and this is how these things transmit. So there doesn't seem to have been a lot of thought around uh, to, to be fair, I think the Prime Minister was right on this point, and that was that he said that he expects very, very quickly that there will be a drying up of incoming travel. Uh, yeah, uh, I, think, I think that's absolutely, yeah. So so in that sense, it, it will self-correct with the taxi situation, but not entirely so, right? Yeah, and there'll be Australians coming back from overseas that, you know, you can't stop them from coming back. So, um, look, I mean, I, th- I think one of the things about this, the whole thing is proven, is, is two things, is, is that... Uh, Getting in front of it matters and credit to Scott Morrison for calling it as if it was a pandemic before it was officially That's declared true. as a pandemic. And, and, and the, the China ban was, was relatively early too. That's right. And also starting the language because bear in mind when he started with that, there was still a whole range of people. Alexander Downer took to social media to, to mock uh, the response to coronavirus and doing the usual thing about how many people die of snake bites and getting his figures wrong anyway about how many people die of HIV and all this sort of stuff. But there was, you know, in conservative politics, quite apart from anywhere else, this kind of mockery that people would need to take coronavirus seriously. And and yet they were up front with that. And yet there still seems to be, maybe it's an inevitability with these things, a set of mixed messages around things like you must self-isolate but short jump in a cab. Uh, or the fact that you can't have gatherings of 500. But if you look at Cherrybrook Tech, a school in northwestern Sydney, mm. has 2,000 pupils on the roll in one place. That's okay. Um, you know, you can't go to a movie because there's too many people in one room, but you can, you can go to a school, assembly halls, all that kind of business. And when you listen to the education minister, Dan Tian, talking about this, he uh, made plain that the reason why schools are still open is not health-based. It's based on community, uh, if you like, uh, lubrication uh, on the basis that if you shut down schools, you basically shut down the economy and that you have to keep that open so that people can go to work. And as he points out, a lot of health workers, if they have to leave work to look after kids at home, this some, on some estimates, 30% of health workers, nurses and, and some doctors would have to just walk away to look after or, or make other arrangements or something for their kids. So shutting down schools is enormously significant. But at the same time, the longer you leave it, the more likely it is that there has been some vectoring of the coronavirus into the school mm. population, which then comes back into homes. Hugh, we're just going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, Husey here. You can't get enough of Husey. We have a problem. Channel 10's hit show. Well, now there's more to get. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 39 of The Professor and the Hack. Uh, I'm Hugh Rimmons in the Hack. In isolation, we should. In in isolation at home, self-imposed isolation with The Professor, not a doctor, well, you are a doctor, but I'm I am a doctor. I'm just not a doctor that you want to rely on for medical advice. <laughs> <laughs> Although, having said that, who do you rely on? The chief medical officer? He's well, a doctor and he runs around shaking hands, so who knows? There you go. Um, you do look pretty at a mask and with those uh, those fetching uh, blue rubber gloves on, um, uh, Peter Van Onselen. Now, quite seriously, there has been reported from the UK an estimate about what this might 
do in terms of the numbers that's, uh, that has come out, mm. where there is a belief that on the amount of transmission that they are seeing, and this is on their, their, their upper end of their, you know, it's not the sort of calamitous worst case, we're all doomed, but it is within the range of possibilities that 7.9 million uh, Britons will require hospitalisation with coronavirus. I mean, that is um, just hard to even fathom how they cope with that. So then look at this. It's about two and a half times the Australian population. So let's try and work that back down. Very rough figures. You've got to look at, you know, maybe three million Australians might need hospitalisation. Two to three million might need hospitalisation uh, if that was the case. But they're case. going to change that, aren't they, Hugh? They're going to, I mean, that's what we say now, but obviously with the capacities of hospitals, depending on how much we can flatten the curve so that the need for hospitalisation is spread over as wide a time frame as possible... I imagine they're going to downgrade when hospitalisation is put into practice for people. So, for example, at the moment, you get it, you go into hospital. They're going to get to a point where you get it, you go into isolation at home, and you keep on hotlines and perhaps even home visits, I would have thought. And, and, that, that, kind of and that would make sense because mm. most of the people at the moment, for example, Peter Dutton, following protocol, went to hospital. Now, and he, he as he has reported himself, he does have asthma, so he does have an underlying condition. Um, and he might go to hospital anyway. He might be the kind of person who would go to hospital anyway because he's got that underlying condition. But um, I think what is likely to inevitably become the case because there's no alternative to it is that there has to be decisions made about who gets to go to hospital um, mm. and plainly then you get onto the much more difficult decisions which already uh, physicians are, are talking about emergency physicians dr norman swan at the abc is talking about about the point where you get to where in fact people might be desperately ill requiring ventilators and so on there are not enough ventilators to go around so individual doctors have to make decisions as to who gets the ventilator and who doesn't knowing that some uh that get refused that support will will die will die and that that is what happens and this is again why it's so critical to flatten the curve again why it seems strange to me why we don't just get on with it and shut down the school and and that becomes quite an ageist thing doesn't it hugh so for example um if i'm 44 if i'm there on a ventilator because unusually for my age contracting coronavirus i need it because i've gone downhill and there's another person in their 70s in almost exactly like for like in terms of where we're at struggling with this, they would make the decision, as I understand it, under that sort of triage situation to try to save me, uh, not the person in their 70s. That's probably true. Those are the calculations that get made. Uh, and th- But then they might also look at what other comorbidity factors you might have, which indicate that you might do less well than the 70-year-old. Um, you know, so... You know, in New Zealand, as a matter of normal course, you can't get to see a cardiologist in the public health system, and most people there are in the public health system. You can't get to see a cardiologist past, I think it's the age of 70. It's either 70 or 75. And I know this because my mum went into heart failure. She was in her 80s, wasn't allowed to see a cardiologist because that limited resource is reserved for uh, younger people. Where was now, that, sorry? As a, in New Zealand. Right. Now, now, what they do to compensate for that is that they have a brilliant – you still see a doctor, and doctors get trained up on, on, on heart issues, and they have these brilliant uh, heart nurses, as they call them, who are specifically specialized on those. And a lot of what happens with heart medicine is quite well known. The numbers 
on, on heart disease and various heart issues are so large that they have a lot of data on it. So they know that certain things you can tweak, etc., you, you can deal with doesn't require the intervention of a cardiologist, just like most childbirths don't actually require an obstetrician. A midwife can usually get you there. So, so what they do is they have rationed the supply of cardiologists to people under 70. Now, those sorts of decisions and similar are already being made in the health system. We don't, just don't hear about it a great deal. That sort of thing will become much more acute. And of course, if you look at the, say, the young and the fit who can't be bothered this, you know, I'm not going to get it, I don't, coronavirus, I don't care, whatever. Bear in mind that you have a few drinks and then show off jumping off your balcony into the pool and hit your head. Well, yes. You're going to wind up in a hospital, you know, where there's no way they're going to deal with you because they've got so many other things. It's, it's a time for everyone to be just a little bit sensible about reducing risk all over and also trying to, as they say, flatten this curve. That's right. That is exactly right. And that, part of this is the hu- the herd immunity principle. Have you had a lot of reading and, and people contacting you so, about this? Because I, I, I've been starting to delve a little bit into this. Well, I'd love to hear about it because herd immunity works where there are vaccinations. And if enough people are vaccinated, if you've got a population where 90% are vaccinated against a disease, then even those who are not vaccinated get what's called a herd immunity Mm. because the people around them are unlikely to get uh, the the disease or measles, whatever it might be. And so therefore you're unlikely to get it even though you're not vaccinated. But herd immunity with a disease where there is no vaccination – do explain what you've learned well, from your my reading. My understanding is that the, the whole flattening of the curve is about waiting for the ability for herd immunity to come in with a vaccine and in the meantime just simply trying to cope our way through it rather than trying to actually contain it. It's about trying to minimise it rather than contain it with almost a back and forth flow between going into lockdowns to minimise it but they're not going into lockdowns for too extended a period that the economy completely tanks as a consequence. And it's all about a a management of this so that we come out the other side, ultimately with herd immunity, with the the relief that a vaccine can provide in due course. But it's pretty scary stuff. Um, And I'm I'm neither being critical nor um, advocating it, but it is something that the pollies aren't really talking about yet. But as I understand it, in some of the backroom discussions, it's it's in the mix with the strategy that they're looking at because it does, as as a logical consequence, go to some extent hand in glove with this idea of 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 flattening the curve. The other thing that we've got to watch out for is the time frame that's involved. No one knows exactly uh, whether this. Uh, coronavirus will follow uh, the flu pattern. There's a general assumption that it will, and that means that it dies off during summer. Uh, the transmission is uh, mm. is less less easy during hotter, drier months than it is during wetter, cooler months. And so in the Northern Hemisphere, where, of course, about 80% of the global economy lives, um, they're about to head into summer. They might reasonably expect that there will be uh, some sort of peaking of it. They hope if it follows flu, this would be what happens. And so there'll be a few months there from, you know, June, July, August in particular, when we might see some significant improvements in the numbers and so on. And that might relieve some of the pressure on the global economy, on supply chains and so on, some of it. But 
There is from Tony Fauci, who's the head of infectious diseases, the national director in the United States. He's clearly said that there is no expectation that there will be a widely available uh, vaccine for 12 to 18 months. Now, that would mean that even if there is a summer break in the northern hemisphere, during which time, of course, Australia will be in the peak of this coronavirus uh, process, uh, it will resume come the new autumn in the Northern Hemisphere, October, November, December, and so on, there still will not be a vaccine. And so it goes at that point into a second wave in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, if that's the case, again, you look to the Southern Hemisphere where we live, we're going to go through a really rugged next three to four months. We might then hope that we are coming out of that, that we get a bit of a, if it follows flu patterns, that we'll get a better result uh, through our drier summer months. But at the same time, the global economy could be into a second wave tanking before we get those vaccines to come through and give us some relief. So we're a long way, it would seem to me, I don't know what your read is on this, Peter, uh, from from getting out of this. It's a long, long road. Yeah, and, and the cycles of it, you know, as you're alluding to there, you know, our winter, their summer followed by their winter, I think it's also potentially naive to assume... Uh, particularly pre-vaccine, that this thing comes and goes and doesn't come back. Uh, so there's all of that enveloped with what we also know historically, which is that you know the early 80s recession, the early 90s recession, unemployment rates effectively double during times like that from you know roughly single-digit figures of 5 to 6% to double-digit figures of 10 to 12%. They double within 12 to 18 months. But then they take 10 years to get back to where they previously were. So recoveries are hard. To, so so a, a few things then on, on the politics around the economics. Uh, we've now got a national cabinet. It's a warlike cabinet. It's because, not though, Hugh. I, wanna, I, wanna, can, I, can, I, I know. I you know where I'm going. Go with this one because you've got the premiers in there, including Labor premiers in there with the federal government. You don't have what, – what's missing, Peter? The federal opposition. War cabinets are about avoiding partisanship, which is good. And they're about preventing an opposition from either intentionally or unintentionally playing politics or just looking like it's playing politics by being critical and therefore causing divisions. So what you do is you bring the opposition leader in. You bring, in the context of a war cabinet, you bring the shadow defence spokesperson and those sort of personnel in. But in this context, it would be the shadow health and, and the like. And you don't have them all there. You don't double the size of the cabinet, but you bring in a few of them. And as a result from doing that, you have a bipartisan approach, which means that the public can have a level of, A, confidence that all the pollies are on the same page, B, confidence that you've got a varied set of opinions going into decision-making, and C, you then don't have the carping publicly, which might be justified otherwise if you don't have a wartime-style cabinet, or it might just be unjustified politicking. Who knows? It, it's, it's the right thing to do. Uh, so I like the premiers being brought in, although as I understand it, it's kind of a hookup once a week with them. It's not really a proper war cabinet, even as far as they go. But you've got to bring the opposition in as well. It's the right thing to do. I don't know why he's not doing it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it does require strong leaders. You know, Churchill had a war cabinet. Uh, it, it, the best example historically is as. Uh, was the team of rivals that was compiled by Abraham Lincoln uh, to, it, during the, the depths of the American Civil War on the on the Union side. Abe Lincoln, of course, uh, uh, and just some would argue 
like Churchill, just a one in a in a century kind of leader in a crisis. Um, but we're seeing in the absence of that combined cabinet, uh, Anthony Albanese today saying that something must be done immediately to protect casual workers. Uh, he says they can't go without pay for two weeks, let alone two days. If they have to go into isolation, who's going to protect them? Who's going to manage their rents? You know, where is going to be the financial help? What is going to be the new deal that is going to essentially keep all Australians, you know, of course, we're all encouraged by uh, Scott Morrison's line that if Australians just keep on being Australians, we'll all get through this together. Well, what about the business? Isn't, isn't that Will the we... most vacuous thing you've ever heard? The most it's important r- thing we right do is that Australians keep being Australians. Good tip. Yeah, so, okay, so Australians being Australians can be defined by however Australians want to define it, but Albert Easy is trying to make the point that uh, if we're going to self-isolation, therefore no uh, pay, what is going to be the thing that is going to stop them from being turfed out of their houses? You know, if they've got no income, how does this work? In Italy, they've suspended mortgages, but that's failed state territory. You know, does that happen here? I mean, then you bring down banks, but what do you do then? You put a bank guarantee and it's... it's oh, the, the domino effect economically is arguably as if not more difficult to stop than the domino effect of the contagion of this thing. And I've got to say that one of the things which came up when they made the announcement of the stimulus package, I've been trying to find out details on this, but one of them was $25,000, up to $25,000, going to every company uh, that employs people with a turnover of less than $50 million a year. So that's a lot of these Mm. little mum-and-pop businesses. And yet I tried to find details. They said it would just be paid out. You didn't have to apply for it. It would just be paid out. But then there are immediate questions. If it's just being paid out, is it $25,000? Why are you saying up to $25,000? Who decides whether it's $12,000 or $20,000 or $25,000? On what basis is that made? Is it made on how many people you employ? Is it based on where you are on that list of up to $50 million? Trying to get answers out of the government as to what this thing is that was part of the great stimulus package is almost impossible. I've certainly haven't been able to get any, and I've put in my requests. Hmm. So... Um, the stimulus package itself sounds good in the short term, uh, reinforces a sense that the government's at the wheel and is doing stuff. But then immediately when you start reaching for the detail, it's very hard to find out what it might actually mean. And then once that happens, the confidence uplift that happens in the short term, it, it, you know, just tends to get lost into, into a new round of confusion. Uh, if, if, you're a professor of politics and we're nearly out of time. Mm. Of the things that are being done and are not being done, what do you think needs to be done most? Well, I think I think the next big question, and, and you know, possibly even by the time people listen to this, this may already be happening, even though it hasn't happened at this exact moment in a mass sense, is what does or doesn't happen with schools. That's the big one. Uh, but I'm I'm torn on this, and and I know that the professional advice, as well as the medical advice and the logistical advice, is torn on schools as well because they are petri dishes when it comes to spreading illness but they also keep uh, young children who can be infected but be okay away from grandparents for example who are not okay certainly not to the same extent if they catch coronavirus because parents might need to still be at work those who can still go to work so it's a very difficult one what does or doesn't happen with with schools i think that's the next big step and then I think the next big step after that, Hugh, 
is do we go into a lockdown, an actual you must stay at home unless you are going to get groceries locked down? How does that logistically apply? Who does it apply to? What is considered essential services outside of lockdown? Is the media considered essential services outside of lockdown? I would argue yes, uh, not because I want to come to work to do this, but because I think people need to know what's going on through the messages of the media. But do they limit the essential services of the media to the state broadcaster? This government isn't exactly a huge fan of the ABC, but perhaps that becomes the compromise between all free media continuing as non-essential services versus just the state broadcaster. Who knows? There are so many big questions where it goes from here, and that's probably why we'll do another podcast sooner rather than later. I think so. PVO, great to talk to you. Stay well, you and all of yours and anyone listening. Do your best with uh, Deliveroo, Uber Eats, Menu Log. Maybe they'll start advertising with us. I, but, I uh, made, they I they made are the your friends at the moment, soup Hugh. yesterday you've ever seen, so they should see me through <laughs> for the next two weeks. Talk all soon. the best. Stay safe. Talk soon. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. <laughs> 